Let us pray once again, seeking the Lord's favor as we now come to the preaching of the word. Father God, we again come to thee through thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of thy Holy Spirit. We ask God for thy aid. Help this preacher to preach thy word, to apply thy word. Lord, work with and through the preaching, O God, I ask, to comfort our hearts to strengthen our faith, to set our eyes all the more upon Jesus Christ. Jesus, be thou magnified and lifted up. Holy Spirit, help us to hear, to obey. May we lean upon thee even throughout the sermon. The Lord rebuke Satan from taking this good word from us. Or rather, that thy word would take root in good soil of our hearts, which thou hast prepared. It would bring forth fruit, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. God, we rest upon thee. We trust thee. We look to thee even now. Guide us. Grant us a greater vision of Christ. Oh, that we would love thee more, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. You know, the word of the Lord. And when he, that is Jesus, had called the people unto him with his disciples also, He said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father, the holy angels. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it. Amen. Dear congregation, the Christian life which we all profess to live and which we do live, is radically founded upon and resting in Christ. The Christian life is a life radically founded upon and resting in Jesus the Christ. It is a life that is Christ-centered, Christ-saturated, Christ-determined. The Christian's heart cannot but say, cannot but cry out, Oh, for a thousand lives to live for Jesus. In being set on Christ, the Christian life is opposed 
to all else. All of the Christian's affection is given to Christ. He is the Christian's chief delight. His treasure. The Christian life is one that is always confessing. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. Like we see in the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 2. With the Apostle Paul, the Christian can only say, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The Christian chooses Christ over everything else that this world has to offer. And even in light of the bitter costs to his earthly ease and comfort, which may come from following Jesus, from choosing Jesus above everything else, even in light of these bitter costs, like Moses The Christian chooses rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? Because the Christian considers Christ to be of greater riches than all the riches that the world can afford him. All believers, dear congregation, have always considered Christ to be their treasure. All believers have always considered Christ to be their treasure. He for whom they are not only willing to suffer the loss of everything else, but he for whom they joyfully also reject everything else. As we see in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, 7-14, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. But the Apostle Paul says, I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended for Christ Jesus. He continues, making his appeal to the Philippian church. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That is a picture of the Christian life. (coughs) It is unfortunate that we felt the need to divide the passage into two sermons. And for the sake of keeping before our eyes the context in which Christ's words, which are now before us, come, let us remember that Peter had just rebuked the Lord Jesus Christ. He just rebuked the Lord Jesus Christ for the testimony which Jesus gave concerning his coming crucifixion and resurrection. And Jesus had responded, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. It's with these words in mind, 
with this context in mind, dear congregation, that we have to understand Christ's teaching on cross-bearing and self-denial of dying in order to live. The worldly heart, the worldly heart is set on self-propagation, on self-indulgence, on living one's best life now, on delighting in the dainties of the world rather than upon Christ. The worldling's life is self-determined, self-defined, self-seeking. But the Christian's life is one of self-denial, dying to self and living to Christ alone. A life which recognizes that it has not been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ just so that it could go on to live in a delicious relish of the world's goods and pleasures. But rather, it sees Jesus as its only treasure. The Christian life sees Jesus as its only treasure and self as completely united to and absorbed in Christ, who is life itself. The Christian is willing to spend and to be spent for Christ's sake, for Christ's cause, to be poured out like the Apostle Paul as a drink offering unto God, well-pleasing in his sight. Dear congregation, this is the call of Jesus Christ, the everlasting God incarnate to true discipleship. This is the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, that we lose our life, dear congregation. We lose our life in self, that we might save our life in him. Self-denial is the first rung on the ladder that is the Christian life. Now, are we willing to forsake all that we might have Christ? Are we willing to entrust our very lives to Christ? Do we keep constantly before our minds that our own self-interests, our own plans, our own pleasure-seeking, our own lives must be rejected for the sake of Jesus and the gospel? Do we forget that we are not our own, but rather we have been bought with a price, namely the price of God's own blood and the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ? Do you know, dear congregation, that in order to have a life, it must not be your own, but rather it must be Christ's life in you? Do you know that anything contrary to what I just said is not neutral, not a matter of opinion, but satanic? Satanic. Mm. Therefore, is Jesus your treasure, dear congregation? Is he your delight? In our text, let us consider three points. First, the necessity of self-denial. The necessity of self-denial. Secondly, the unspeakable value of the soul. The unspeakable value of the soul. And third, the danger of being ashamed of Christ. So, the necessity of self-denial, the unspeakable value of the soul, the danger of being ashamed of Christ. First, the necessity of self-denial. After rebuking Peter's satanic mindset, 
One that sought preservation of earthly life rather than the higher glory of heavenly life. Jesus then turns to his disciples and shows them that just as he must go to Jerusalem, just as he must go there and be rejected and suffer and be mocked and die so that he might live again, so too must they lose their own lives in order to save them. Just as he must take up his cross, so too they must take up their own crosses and follow him. But let us not miss the lesson that is here, dear congregation. It's not a matter of the simple act of rejecting one thing for another and weighing it out in the balances. Rather, it is actually impossible to save one's life till they lose it for Christ's sake. It's not even possible that it could be any other way. Whomsoever will come after Jesus must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. It can be no other way. It is impossible. It's the only way it can happen. If one is clinging to their own life, they cannot cling to Christ. It is absolutely necessary that we deny ourselves if we desire to be Christ's disciples and to be saved. All else must be forsaken entirely if we are to have Jesus. If we are to have Jesus. It is an absolute paradigm shift, isn't it, dear congregation? Absolute paradigm shift from the worldling's mindset. One must see himself as defined no longer by self, but by Christ. United to Christ. One who has suffered the loss of all things, but has gained Christ has gained Christ. Not a possessor of self, but a possessor of Christ. The hand, we know, must be empty in order to grasp anything. So too, the soul's shelter must be empty in order to grasp and cling and hold to Christ. As Jesus says in another place, Matthew 6, 24, he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. That is, those who would be true disciples of Christ cannot serve God and this world's goods, this world's interests, this world's pleasures. Self-serving and Christianity, dear congregation, are diametrically opposed. Hear the Apostle James in James 4.4. 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God, he writes. Indeed, part and parcel with true conversion, with true salvation is the taking up of the cross after Christ. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. At the hearing of the gospel, a man comes to a crossroad, doesn't he? He must either follow self or follow Christ. He cannot do both. That's a decision before him. The Christian, in conversion, then rejects self. All that it holds, all that it plans for itself, everything that defines it as self, as ego, and takes up the cross and follows Jesus. 
That's what takes place in conversion. He rejects and denies all that he thinks makes him good or bad, all that he thinks to be defining of himself, and he forgets those things which are behind, and he presses toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And this a true Christian does, no matter the cost or the injury that might be suffered as a cause of it. The Christian, dear congregation, recognizes that to him it is given, as Paul says, in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe upon him, but also to suffer for his sake. Christians not only believe upon Jesus, it's only given them to believe upon Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. Therefore, turning from self, the true believer turns to Christ, takes up his cross, and follows after his Lord. Although salvation, dear congregation, as we know, so well, is nothing but free grace alone. Yet none, nobody, should be so foolish as to think that they will enter heaven at no cost to themselves, without any trouble, pain, suffering, or conflict here on earth. That's a foolish proposition. It has never been the case with any of Christ's people. The Old Testament saints, we read, in following after Christ, had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. But this they did willingly. (coughs) They did this willingly, Because they had their hearts and their eyes set on a better country, that is, an heavenly country. Where God is called their God, and they are called his people. You can read more about that in Hebrews 11. In the same way, we too, dear Christians, are called to take up our cross, laying aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and also run the race that is set before us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. As the apostle continues in chapter 12. Dear congregation, we have to remember something about the cross. It's so common for us. Pop culture uses the cross. Western culture is permeated with images of the cross. Discussions of the cross. Poems on the cross. Books on the cross. But dear congregation, the cross is a death sentence. It's an execution instrument. It's a death sentence. And that death is our death to self, that we might live to God through Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Upon the cross that we are to take up, we, as Christians, are accounted dead and gone. Dead and gone. And no longer alive to self or to the world, but to God alone. This is why, this is why, though our, our crosses may cost us dearly, with Paul, we view it as a cause for boasting. Christians view their cross, upon which they go to die, as a cause for boasting. Galatians 4.14, the Apostle Paul says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, thank God, and I unto the world. Mm. 
dear congregation, we must be content to take up both the cross of doctrine and the cross of practice. What do I mean by that? That is the cross of holding to a faith which the world despises and the cross of living a life which the world ridicules as strange and strict and pleasureless. We must be willing to crucify the flesh. That's what the cross is for us. To mortify, that is to put to death the deeds of the body. To fight daily with the devil. To come out of the world and to lose our lives for Christ's sake and the gospel's. Now, there's no dispute. No dispute. These are certainly hard sayings. But we can't evade them. We can't ignore them. We can't pretend they're not there. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. The words of our Lord are plain and unmistakable. These are not arcane. These are not hard to grasp. As J.C. Ryle said, If we will not carry the cross, we shall never wear the crown. But dear Christians, let, let us not be deterred from Christ's service by the fear of the cross. Yes, it's heavy. Yes, it is hard. But let us not then be deterred from serving Christ because of our fear of it. Though the cross appears heavy and splintered, Jesus will give us the grace to bear it, won't he? Mm. Philippians 4.13, the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. As Spurgeon said, Jesus always carries the heavy side of the cross. Millions of Christians, dear congregation, have borne it before us. They've taken up their crosses. And we shall find, just like they did, dear congregation, that Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. No good thing on earth was ever attained without trouble. No good thing is ever attained without trouble. Surely we cannot expect that without trouble, we can just waltz into the kingdom of God. Let us go forward boldly and allow no difficulty to keep us back. The cross which we bear as Christians, and there are no Christians who do not bear crosses. The cross which we bear as Christians, we only bear for a few years. Just a couple of years. But the glories of heaven are world without end. Amen. Amen. Let us often ask ourselves whether our Christianity costs us anything. Does our Christianity cost us anything? What have we sacrificed to have Christ? What was our denial of self and the cost of it? What did it cost us? Does our Christianity have a true stamp from heaven? Does it carry with it any crosses? Can we point back to what our old life looked like and count the differences between it and our new life in Christ? If not, if there be no difference between our life lived for self in the flesh and our life lived for Christ, we have cause to tremble and fear greatly. Dear Christian, a religion which costs us nothing is not worth having. Let us ensure that we can say with Paul, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung 
that I may win Christ. Second, the unspeakable value of the soul. Jesus continues in verses 35 through 37. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Dear congregation, our soul is all that we truly possess. And it is that which is of greatest value to us. Soon, very soon, we all shall swing out into eternity. With nothing but our souls. What good shall anything at all be to us if, when we shortly come to close our eyes in death, we shall only open them again in hell, having forfeited our own soul? What good would anything be at that point? Of what use could fame, prestige, social capital, honor, riches, kingdoms, homes, cars, and loved ones be to us then? Of no use. This is what is at stake, dear congregation. There are two options for all human beings. Two fates, two destinies, if you will. Those who refuse to deny self, who refuse to take up their cross and follow Jesus, shall eternally lose their soul. No matter what they were in life, there shall be nothing else at that point than fuel for the fire. Although... As James says, our life is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Yet our soul is eternal. That is why our soul, as Jesus points out here, is of greater value than the whole world. Than the whole world. If you could go to the International Space Station, look down and say, Mine, I own that to the world. It's of no value in comparison to the soul. Congregation, there are many who exchange their soul for worldly enjoyments, sometimes unwittingly, unknowingly. Often the soul is exchanged for things that even by this world's standards, even in this life, are accounted of little value, petty little trinkets, social capital, a needle, the bottle, carnality, all fleeting pleasures. Adam and Eve exchanged their souls and the souls of the whole human race for a mouthful of fruit, Cain for a bowl of soup. But even when the soul is exchanged for kingdoms and riches and honor and prestige, how pitiful these are in comparison to the eternal fate of the soul. John says, the world passeth away and the lust thereof. The world, no matter how glittering, only wastes away, dear congregation. The world, the pleasures thereof, are of no lasting value. Jesus gives us two examples of such men who exchanged their soul for the world. Let's let's take a look briefly at these two men and see what return they received for their investment. In one place, Jesus tells his disciples... A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. He then goes on to speak a parable of a man who had much grain, so much grain 
which was of great value back then, that he was forced to pull down his existing barns and build new ones. He was rich beyond all comprehension. We have to understand that. And reading that he had all these barns full of grain, he was rich beyond all comprehension. He had all the worldly comfort, all the worldly goods that one could ever enjoy, ever think they needed. And with a sigh of satisfaction, we read that he says to his own soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He gained the world. But what does God say to him? Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So too in the case of the rich man in chapter 16 of Luke's gospel. In his life, he received good things, we read. But then he died, was buried, and in hell, lift up his eyes, being in torment. A lot of good it did him. These two men exchanged their soul for the world. They gained the world and they lost their soul. Dear congregation, do we not yet see the value of our souls? Do you see the value of your souls, dear Christians? This is why Paul could be content to lose all things for the sake of Christ. Better to have Christ and suffering in this life, that we might have Christ and joy eternally. It is true that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. But in losing their life for Christ's sake, Christians shall save their life. We must lose the world. That's no cause for tears. For we shall gain Christ. We must exchange self for Jesus and the gospel. We surely, truly will endure and suffer hardship for Christ's sake in this life as Christians. We shall suffer the loss of certain worldly delights, certain worldly advancements and promotions. But we shall enter into the joy of our Lord at that last day and receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away, as Peter says. What could be of greater value to us? If we are Christian, nothing. Dear Christians, when the cross is heaviest upon our backs, when we are most weary, when we are under the greatest trial, the greatest persecution, the greatest hardship that we've had to go through, when setting down that cross that we're carrying and walking with Jesus no more, seems most tempting when just a little relief from the world, away from Christ, like a finger dipped in water and touched to the parched tongue, seems most desirable in order to alleviate our difficulty and hardship in following Christ. Let us remember to ask ourselves, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? When Satan, dear believer, And you've heard his voice, haven't you? When he comes attempting us, saying, Far be it from thee to deny thyself for Christ's sake. It should not be unto thee to miss out on all the world has for thee, simply to endure present hardships. Behold, I show thee all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
All these things I will give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. We've all heard that voice and so has our Savior. Mm. Let us then, when Satan comes attempting with those serpentine words, put Christ's question to our hearts again. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Let us hold to Christ dear congregation, and be willing to suffer the loss of all things that we might possess the far greater treasure of knowing him and the power of his resurrection. Do we believe that to live is Christ? Then we must die to self. Third, the danger of being ashamed of Christ. Jesus concluded by saying in verse 38, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. What does it mean? What does it mean to be ashamed of Christ? Well, it's to deny him, to reject his gospel, to refuse to identify oneself with him, to refuse to take up the cross and follow him. To be ashamed of Christ is to consider it a loss rather than a gain to have Christ. How many have we come across like that in our lives? I would love to be a Christian. I would love to be religious. I would love to do all that church stuff. It sounds great. It really looks like it's a good thing for you. But I just wouldn't have to give up too many things that I love. That's what it is to be ashamed of Christ. To consider it a loss to lose the world rather than a gain, because we have Christ. Those who are ashamed of Christ are those who respond with sadness to his call to follow him. Such was the case of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. He asked Jesus, what is necessary to have eternal life? But when Jesus tells him that he must sell all of his possessions and then follow him, then the young man is sad. When he's told that he must leave everything else and follow Jesus, that is, that the young man must deny himself, then is when he goes away sad. That is, he is ashamed of Christ and his words. That what, that's what that sadness was. The sadness the man felt was that he was sad over the loss that would have to be incurred to follow Jesus. He was ashamed of Christ and his words. He counts the loss of the world in order to gain Christ and save his soul to be a cause for sadness and despair rather than for joy. Those who, consider, those who consider, dear congregation, the pleasures and riches of this present, evil, sinful, selfish, faithless, and perishing world to be of more value than following Jesus are those who are ashamed of him. That's what being ashamed of Christ looks like and means. Dear Christians, we must seek out such shame that exists in our hearts still, even as believers. Seek it out in our own hearts. In every corner, under every stone, in every cave and crevice of our hearts. And wherever we find it, we must slay it where it stands. Although true believers can never be ashamed of Christ in such a way that it leads to their damnation, i.e. of Christ being ashamed of them at his return, yet We still, even as believers in this current life, in this body, have unmortified, uncrucified 
aspects of sinful shame for Christ's dwelling, for Christ dwelling within us. We are sometimes ashamed of Christ's person and doctrine before ourselves and before the world. In doing so, by being ashamed of Christ before ourselves and before the world, we shrink back from the promises of God. And this is a great evil that must be avoided by us as Christians. For the better instruction on how we might not be ashamed of Christ in anything, let us examine each one of those points in turn. Being ashamed of Christ before self, what do I mean? Well, we show that we are ashamed of Christ before our own selves when we do not believe what Christ says. And do not consider following him to be our chief delight, but rather consider it to be a cause for sadness. Whenever we will not personally trust Christ's words, that is his doctrine, we show that we are ashamed of him in some degree, and it is sin. We oftentimes, as believers even, go about to establish our own righteousness. And then we attempt to hold communion with God on those imperfect, fallible terms. Rather than upon the completed work of Christ, we are ashamed of his words. The words that he speaks, that the only work that God requires of us is to believe on him whom he hath sent, as he says in John six twenty nine. Dear believers, let us swiftly and immediately remedy this sin by killing it, putting it to death, by casting off all hope that we have in self whatsoever and believing that we have been redeemed, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy in Christ, as Paul says to Timothy Chapter 3, verse 5. This is a great danger. This is a great danger, dear Christian, to trust in self at all Mm. and doubt and be ashamed of Christ's teaching before our own hearts. Why? Because those who go about to establish their own righteousness cut themselves off from any hope of salvation. Because as Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, Romans 10, 4. Let us believe Christ's words in our own hearts, personally, without shame. We also personally are ashamed of Christ's words before ourselves when we grumble against God in our hearts or even outwardly for the cost of following Jesus. When we do this, we demonstrate that we are ashamed of him in that moment. We're ashamed of his person and his teachings, his words. The Israelites who complained against God in the desert, as we read about, for the sufferings which they endured in following Jehovah. They complained about it. What happened to them? Well, they had their graves made in that same desert, didn't they? Mm. In following Christ, we will suffer trials and difficulties. Yet, it is only... When we are ashamed to suffer for Christ, that we respond to these trials with grumbling. And we do this when we think it some strange thing happening to us, as Peter says, to endure trials and afflictions for Christ's sake. Like it's strange that we would endure sufferings. When we do that and we grumble, why is this happening to me? Why are things hard? Why are people hating me for my faith? Why are difficulties upon me? This is not fair. God must not love me. That is to be ashamed of what Christ says, where he says, pick up your cross and follow me. We should rather count it a joy to suffer for him. We also are ashamed 
even as Christians of Christ and his words, when we are ashamed of Christ before the world. We are ashamed of Christ before the world when we consider it something that will only bring sorrow and loss to us if we live for Christ and preach the gospel unto others around us. We think, well, if I were to preach the gospel, something bad might happen. I might lose my job. I might lose my respect that people have for me. I might be mocked and made fun of. But Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, Romans 1.16. Yet, how many professing Christians do we know that are ashamed to say a word for Christ to those around them? How many ministers even are ashamed to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to preach everything in this book? Ministers that are ashamed to preach the whole counsel of God And while they'll give some of the words of Christ, they're ashamed of some of the other ones. They consider the unpopularity and the persecution which might come upon them. They might have to endure for teaching the whole counsel of God to be a cause for sadness. Something to shrink away from Christ's words, i.e. be ashamed of him. They're ashamed of some of Christ's doctrine. Well, when we do this as believers, dear congregation, we show that we are more interested in being accepted by this adulterous and sinful generation than being faithful to Jesus. We are ashamed of his words. That's what's happening in those instances. And thus, his person. Because unlike the apostles, we do not consider it to be a cause for rejoicing to be counted worthy to to suffer shame for his name as the apostles considered it in Acts 5.41 when they were beaten for preaching the gospel. Congregation, Christ's doctrine, laws, and people were never popular, and they never will be. It's no surprise. The man who boldly confesses that he loves Jesus, that he loves God, that he loves God's law and the gospel, is sure to bring upon himself ridicule, and persecution, and hardship. That's just how it is. Whoever shrinks from this confession, from professing that Christ is king, that Christ is the savior, that we are to take up our crosses, denying ourselves, and follow him, whoever is afraid to do that and shrinks away from it, simply because they're afraid of ridicule and persecution, is someone who is ashamed of Jesus Christ in that moment. But recall, dear congregation, an important thing that also spurs us on to not be ashamed in those moments. Those around us, those around you, who have not picked up their crosses and followed Jesus, are exchanging their eternal soul for the world. And if they do not repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they do not hear the gospel preached to them by someone, and then respond to it with faith, they shall have their everlasting dwelling place in hell. We, dear congregation, are ambassadors. As Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ. We must therefore bring his gospel to the ends of the earth, to all those around us. That is our calling. That is part of what following Jesus looks like. There is no rightful cause for shame over Jesus and his gospel. Why? For his are the words of eternal life. Finally, let us consider what a great evil, an aggravated evil, as the Puritans would say, to be ashamed of Christ. It is a great and aggravated evil to be ashamed of Christ. 
Why is this? We sometimes miss the whole picture. It's not just about the keeping of the law or not and the sins that happen by not doing it and being wicked and naughty. What's the bigger picture? What makes it so heinous? What makes it so sinful? Because for this reason, to repay so sweet a savior with shamefacedness over his person, work, and words is unspeakable when considered rightly. To repay an act of kindness done by someone in the world, by people one to another, with betrayal and theft is condemned by all right-thinking people. They would say that's cruel, that's backwards, that's wrong. That person paid for their meal, paid for their car to be fixed, and they betrayed them, they stole from them, they killed them. Everyone would say that's wrong. To be ashamed of Christ for his mercy and grace, we see, is repaid with what? Eternal condemnation. From this alone, we should see how great this evil is. That being ashamed of Christ merits eternal damnation. It is an an evil, unlike any other. No Christian can be ashamed, as we said, of Christ in this way, a way that is damning. Such belongs to unbelievers alone. But Christians often play the whore when they permit such vile thoughts and actions in their lives, don't they? No one can pick up the cross and follow Jesus with regret and sadness. It simply cannot happen. Because picking up the cross and following Jesus to death, to our own death, to ourself, that we might live in Christ, is a joyful self-sacrifice, living unto Christ, loving him because he first loved us. Dear Christian, do you repay Jesus grumbling for his providences? Do you render disobedience to him for his obedience to his father on your behalf? Do you offer unfaithfulness to him for his covenant faithfulness to you? Are you diligent to die to self and live to Jesus who died and lives again for you? Is the cross of Christ to you a cause for boasting or a cause for sadness? Dear believers, dear congregation, let us give our all to him who gave himself to us. How can we repay him with evil who has freely lavished such mercy, such love, such grace upon us? That's the point. That's the point. Not about just right and wrong. We're sitting against a great God who has saved a people. And as Christians, we have no excuse. Our sin is aggravated all the more. In our sinning, we see truly what the sinfulness of sin is. That not only can it go against a God that exists and is holy and righteous and pure, but a God that is redeemed and saved by his own blood. Mm. It is unreasonable, illogical, and wicked To live with no regard to Christ and his words. Remember, it is by the mercies of God that Paul beseeches us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Therefore, in light of our guilt and God's grace in Christ, the only reasonable response for Christians is to serve him in humble gratitude. In humble gratitude. Dear believers, let us all pray daily for faith 
and courage to confess Christ before the world. Of sin, of worldliness, or unbelief, we should be ashamed. Indeed. But let us never be ashamed of him who died for us on the cross. Better to a thousand times confess Christ now and be despised by man than to be disowned by Christ before his Father and the holy angels on the day of judgment. May Christ increase and we decrease. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we again come before thee. We thank thee for thy word. We ask, O God, that we would respond to the grace that thou hast given us in thy son, Jesus Christ, with gratitude, joyfully, willingly picking up our crosses and following thee, Lord Jesus. We know thou dost empower us and shalt carry the heavy side for us and that we can do all things through thee, Lord Jesus. For thou art he who strengtheneth us. We ask for thy help in living for thee. We would see thy love for us as our greatest motivation to live for thee. We would see thee as the determining and defining factor of our lives. We ask for thy help we would rightly worship thee in a way that is pleasing to thee the rest of this Lord's day. We thank thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.